remember just about a year ago when we all started using Zoom on a regular basis. Remember what it was like getting used to these squares, exploring this experience, slowly coming to understand how this all worked. I remember early on, sometimes a person would enter the meeting and someone else would greet them. And if there were a lot of people already there, it wasn't always easy to find the person who had just entered the room. Hi, Mary, someone would say, and another person would say, Mary's here? I don't see Mary. And the original greeter might say, she's in the square right next to you. And the other person would say, Bill and Ken are on either side of me. And eventually, we came to understand that the arrangement of squares on the screen was different for each person. On my screen, Mary might be just above you. But on your screen, Mary might show up beside Dorothy. You know what I mean. Everyone is seeing squares in a different order, a unique Arrangements. However, there is one thing that I can count on. When I enter a room, my square is on the top row. If I am the host, of course, my square is first. But even as a participant, when I enter a room, there I am, top row, right next to the host. That is familiar. It orients me. It grounds me. Am I here? Yes, I am. I can see myself right there on the top row. Not that I always like seeing myself, but that is another story and sermon completely. Now imagine that I download, just imagine this. Imagine that I download and install a Zoom upgrade because I've been told one is available and I love to follow directions. However, though the documentation of all of the new features looks just fascinating, I decide not to read the details as I need to get here to the Sunday worship service. And so I finish the installation and I click the Zoom link and I say, yes, I want to join with video and yes, with audio. And I see the friendly squares, more squares than can be contained on a single screen, friendly squares of members and friends. And I am all ready to enjoy the service, except where am I? My eyes are drawn naturally, unconsciously to that top row where I can always see my square, my face, and my name, all that assures me that I am actually present in this room I am in. But my square is not there. Now there's a moment of panic. Maybe I'm not actually here, not all the way logged in somehow. I look hurriedly over that first screen. Surely I will be somewhere on the first screen, but I am nowhere to be found. Why? What went wrong? I may become accusatory. Somebody messed this up. Has our Zoom team somehow sabotaged me? not allowing me to actually show up in the meeting? Were they messing with settings and somehow rendered me incapable of achieving visibility? 
But before I sink deeper into unjust accusations and misplaced paranoia, I remember, ah, the upgrade. What was in that upgrade? I know there was documentation of the new features, and it was likely explained in there, but still, who is expected to read all that? And why, oh, why did the good people at Zoom think this was an improvement? Because now, on the third or fourth and final screen, I have discovered my square, just another square in the midst of all the others, popping up and shifting a bit with each new participant. But why should I have to go looking for my own square? Why, when things worked so comfortably before, would they change things like this? It's not that I think I deserve to be on the top row necessarily, but at least I knew where to look for myself. I knew that I was actually in the meeting. I knew I was here, and I knew my place. Now, I want to stay with this purely hypothetical Zoom upgrade for a few minutes and assure you all that it is purely hypothetical. And yes, I understand that for advanced users, there are all sorts of things you can do with the arrangement of squares on the screen. But I want to stay with the default, the way Zoom works as a matter of course. Each of us, when we sign on, find ourselves in plain sight, on the top. If it happened that we signed on and, for whatever reason, did not find our square there, it would be disorienting, confusing, anxiety-producing, even frightening. And now let me say this. America, the United States of America, has worked for some of us the way that Zoom works for all of us. People with my identity, white, straight, male, cisgender, presently able-bodied, we show up on the top row. It is the way the American system has been programmed. And unlike Zoom, it is fixed for all participants. Everybody is seeing the same screen, but not everyone is on the top row. It is the way the system, the caste system, as Isabel Wilkerson points out in her book, it is the way it is programmed. Some of us have always appeared on that top row. And now, and may it be so, Now we may be in the midst of a system upgrade that is moving us to de-center whiteness and to move toward collective liberation. A system upgrade that seeks to dismantle this caste system that has been in existence for longer than this country has been in existence. And that means when I log in, I, white male, hetero, cisgender, presently able-bodied, I do not always find my square in its appointed place. And that causes panic. We see it in the society as a whole, and we are experiencing it within Unitarian Universalism itself. Panic, anxiety, blame, anger 
brought about by the disorientation that comes with not seeing myself in that top row. And it's not because I thought I was deserving, not because I am racist, not because I don't wish to be inclusive, not because I don't strive toward justice, equity, and compassion, only that that was the place where I knew to look for myself. It was familiar. It is what the program had taught me to expect. If I don't find myself there, how can I even be sure I'm here? How do I know if when I speak, I can be heard? Am I muted or unmuted? Is my video on or off? Why should I have to go looking for my square when it has always comfortably been there, right at eye level in the top row? Yes, I want to include everyone in the meeting. Yes, I hope we have multiple screens of participants, but why should I have to scroll through all those just to find my place when I had a place right here, first page, top row? And if I am truly committed to inclusion, to working toward collective liberation, from a destructive and stubbornly resistant caste system. If I am all in for the upgrade, then I have also signed up for some necessary disorientation, discomfort, and no small amount of anxiety as I look to find my new place on the ever-changing screens of community, culture, and society. If I am committed to joining with others in becoming the beloved community, I should remember that the process of becoming is, as Reverend Amanda Poppy notes of her own experiences of becoming, the process of becoming is, quote, usually uncomfortable and almost always inconvenient. Becoming is usually uncomfortable, and almost always inconvenient. In other words, it may be that we, especially those of us who have held comfortable locations in the current caste system, it may be that we can actually embrace discomfort and inconvenience when it arises as indicators of movement, as markers of what it is that we are becoming as a component of the upgrade, a reorientation to a new system which is arising. It may be that when we don't find our square in its familiar place, we can embrace even that feeling of lostness as an opportunity to find ourselves and one another anew. If I am not on that top row, if I cannot keep an eye on myself at all times, who am I? How will I relate to others? How will I participate? It is worth noting that there have been many articles written about Zoom fatigue that exhaustion that comes from attending the number of Zoom meetings that many of us have been doing this past year. And one of the most consistent recommendations from most of these articles 
from the Harvard Business Review to the Washington Post to Forbes magazine and countless others, one of the consistent recommendations to address this fatigue is to turn off self-view. In other words, if I turn off self-view, which is an actual Zoom control, this part is not hypothetical. If I turn off self-view, my video remains visible to other attendees, but I can no longer see myself in the meeting. And it was interesting for me to notice my own reaction to that recommendation. Lord knows I am tired of looking at myself. I have had to look at myself more this year than any year since I was born way back in 1960. And yet the idea of turning off my self-views so that I could not see myself in a meeting gave me a sense of, like, vertigo. I had all of those irrational thoughts that I mentioned earlier. How will I know I am really in the meeting? How will I know if I'm muted or unmuted, if people can hear me, if people can see me, and if so, what are they seeing? How will I be able to properly participate without the comfort, the reliability, the familiarity of seeing my square right there on the top row? It is a challenge I must bow to meet in Zoom and more importantly, in this society and community, and yes, within Unitarian Universalism too, to let go of where I am placed, even to feel lost for a bit, because the place I have occupied, familiar and comfortable as it may have been, does not correspond with my commitment to inclusion and justice and equity and collective liberation. The place I have been occupying, fixed and embedded in this society, is simply a manifestation of a corrupted program. Losing my place on the screen just might open up into a freedom that I cannot now even imagine if I am willing to hide self-view for a time, to let my anxiety over the end of what was to transform into anticipation for what can be, to embrace acknowledging the discomfort and inconvenience, to yet embrace this feature of the liberation upgrade. Isabel Wilkerson writes, when an accident of birth aligns with what is most valued in a given caste system, It gives that lottery winner a moral duty to develop a radical kind of empathy. This means putting in the work to educate oneself and to listen with a humble heart to understand another's experience from their perspective, not as we imagine we would feel. Radical empathy is not about you and what you think you would do in a situation you have never been in and perhaps never will. It is the kindred connection from a place of deep knowing that opens your spirit to the pain of another as they perceive it. 
So I, as a member of the dominant caste, have been conditioned to relate everything back to myself. To, in fact, describe others by ways in which they differ from me. Gay, black, female, trans, the list goes on. And to not even refer to such categories if they correspond with mine. Thus, though I do not welcome the skill I've been taught to understand others, to connect with all the other squares here, as it were, by referring to my own experience, by keeping an eye on my own square. And I am taught that it is okay for me to not only analyze your experience through the prism of my own, but to then offer my own interpretation of your experience. This radical empathy calls me to something different. It calls me to let go of my self-view and to open my spirit to the pain and experience of another as they perceive it. This is the sound of one voice, the sound of one who makes a choice. Commitment is a choice. This is the sound of voices too, the sound of me singing with you, helping each other to make it through. We can come alongside one another, offering support, a listening ear, as we move toward the promise of beloved community. This is the sound of all of us singing with love and the will to trust, leave the rest behind, it will turn to dust. I can work on noticing the anxiety that arises with change. I can't necessarily make it disappear, but neither do I need to grab hold of it. If we let it go, it just may turn to dust as we move forward with love and the will to trust. And then imagine the sound of all of us. Wilkerson tells of a member of the Brahmin caste, the dominant caste in India, who comes to reject the caste system and invites others in the dominant caste to give up their familiar place. In so doing, he speaks to the promise that lies on the other side of whatever discomfort we may experience. It will cost you more to keep it than to let it go, he says. It is not real. It is just a marker of your programming. You will be happier and freer without it. You will see all of humanity. You will find your true self. So may it be.